The American History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 32, The Conclusion of the War. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Horswick. Hello and welcome back. We're at the final episode of season two. Boy, was it a long haul. It's been 18, 19 months, just over 30 episodes to get here, but we made it. As always, before we get started, please head over to the website and check, uh, sign up for the email list. You can also check out the sources and while you're there, sign up for our Patreon for as little as $2 a month. You can help support the show, keep the lights on, so to speak, all that good stuff. You can also help to offset the considerable costs of purchasing books for Season 3, which, by the way, is in production. If you just aren't into Patreon, you can simply enter Amazon through the Amazon ad at the bottom of the podcast homepage. Um, you don't have to buy what it suggests, but feel free to purchase anything you'd like. Um, doing that causes Uncle Jeff Bezos to send us a few pennies every time that's done, and it does add up. So thank you very much in advance. Now, if you're into the whole social media thing, you can find me on Twitter, at AmericanHisCast. And finally, please send me uh, some emails, some questions, if you have comments, concerns, complaints. Especially if you have complaints, send me an email. Um, the email is sean at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. All right, enough of that. This week, the song of the week is... Actually, there is no song of the week. The episode uh, promises to be about 30 minutes long, give or take. So I'm skipping the song of the week now, on with the show. Okay, so the last time we left off, General Scott and the U.S. Army um, was entering Mexico City in triumph. However, things weren't all peaches and cream. While Santa Ana uh, sat at Guadalupe Hidalgo waiting to see what happened next, the poor people in the capital had already started sacking the palace. And they uh, then surrounded the Americans at the Grand Plaza, and supposedly, due to uh, American arrogance, the Mexican crowd became a bit unruly. The mob was joined by convicts who had been released by Santa Ana before he fled. Soon shots were fired. The situation was starting to get out of hand. American soldiers, who of course were used to combat, formed up ranks and fired canister from their artillery guns to try and disperse the crowds. Once it was discovered which building housed the sniper, that building was hit with solid shot and angry uh, soldiers entered it. Resistance quickly evaporated, as the only thing most people had to fight the Americans was rocks. Now, the first night was fairly quiet, all things considered, but the next day sporadic violence again broke out. However, it became quite apparent that the only ones who were resisting the Norte Americanos was the poor. The rich were either gone or they were subservient. Thus, the people realized resistance was futile and the violence finally dissipated. Now, for his part, General Winfield Scott understood how to run an occupation, and he went about his job pretty methodically. His first action was to issue General Order Number 284. This document warned the troops that war was not over, and they must be, quote, sober, orderly, and merciful. Next, he confirmed his appointment of John Quitman as the governor of the city. On the 17th of September, he reconfirmed his previous order, establishing martial law, which applied to both soldiers and civilians. 
While the situation did get somewhat better, there was plenty of tension bubbling just below the surface in the capital city. This is a point on which historians John S.D. Eisenhower and David Clary disagree. Eisenhower tends to downplay the violence and quickly moves the narrative forward. Clary argues that Scott and his army had turned one of the great cities of the Western Hemisphere into a hellhole. So which narrative is right? While I really like Eisenhower's narrative, I'm inclined to agree with Clary. I don't think the situation was totally pacified as quickly as Eisenhower makes out. First of all, the economy was suffering. However, I should mention that tailors, barbers, storekeepers, and innkeepers, they were all doing okay, as were prostitutes, who apparently poured into the city after it collapsed. In the meantime, the wealthy hid in their haciendas and in their palaces. This only led to an increase in the class tensions that were already a part and parcel of Mexican society. While Scott felt he had conquered Mexico City, that's debatable. He certainly had not conquered Mexico, and there was still no peace. As a matter of fact, no one from the Mexican government came forward to sue for peace, as Polk had been predicting for over a year at this point. As a matter of fact, there were guerrilla attacks on American forces along the National Highway from Veracruz to Mexico City, and Santa Ana was still out there. He had formally resigned the presidency on the 16th of September after he was essentially deprived of it by what remained of the national government. Puebla was put under siege, but all of it had little effect. The Americans were apparently going nowhere. Soon, Mexico, which was in a sad state, devolved into chaos. Peasant revolts had broken out from the earliest days of the war, and now, in late 1847, with the army practically destroyed and provincial forces in disarray, these rebellions became more widespread and more revolutionary. One general, Francisco de Garay, reported in November that, quote, an insurrectional movement of indigenous peoples in the district of Veracruz, end quote, had begun. Led by Padre Jurata, Jurata, I hope I said that right, these people took over three towns near Tampico and in early 1848 issued a manifesto demanding, quote, the derecognition of all authorities of the government leaving the people in liberty to choose their employment, end quote. They also wanted the collection of land rents abolished, and they wanted all haciendas to henceforth be held in common and enjoyed in common. This sentiment echoed the ideals of Hidalgo's rebellion of 1810 and would influence later revolutionaries in the early 20th century. Furthermore, New Mexico was problematic. There, Brigadier General Sterling Price chafed at fighting Indians and guerrillas. The Navy had a problem with insurgents in the coastal areas of Mexico, and their occupation garrison at Veracruz suffered the same harassment as the army itself was facing, and Baja California continued to be in an uproar, so things were far from settled. Politician and former cabinet member Mariano Otero warned his countrymen of what was coming. He published a highly critical essay on the humiliation of Mexico after the fall of the capital. In it, he said he believed that no matter the form it took, be it centralist or federalist, the Mexican government oppressed the people who had no incentive to fight the invader. The rich refused to work, and the poor were not allowed to take up a trade. Thus, quote, it has come about that while the republic is plagued by hundreds of generals, thousands of superintendents and officials, bureaucrats, clergymen, and doctors, one cannot find a single distinguished Mexican in any art, skill, or trade, end quote. If one looked for a craftsman in a city, he said, they turned out to be foreigners. Further, he noted that while Mexico had tremendous natural wealth, 
quote, as long as fanaticism, ignorance, and laziness continue being the basis of our education, and as long as we do not have a government which is truly enlightened and energetic, end quote, the people would continue to be poor and would not defend it. So Mexico was a mess. For his part, President James K. Polk had unleashed a revolutionary whirlwind and had no understanding of the situation. He believed a limited invasion to conquer a peace would result, something it obviously failed to achieve. Further, the other side had failed to come to the negotiating table, a situation he blamed on Scott and Nicholas Trist. To make matters worse, General Zachary Taylor had decided to take six months off from the army and was going to run for president. He caught a ship to New Orleans and arrived to a raucous reception. He continued on to his plantation in Louisiana to await the call of the Whig Party. Another problem for Polk was that he was starting to lose his grip on the cabinet. The president believed, wrongfully, that if the United States made Mexicans pay taxes to the United States in areas under their control, the wealthy in Mexico would pressure the government to make peace. Remember, the wealthy cared not what happened to the poor, and furthermore, the rich had the means to leave areas that were under the jurisdiction of the U.S. Army. Finally, Polk was not willing to trust diplomats too far away from his reach. When Trist sent a message proposing a buffer zone in between the Nueces and the Rio Grande, the president exploded. He ordered Trist home. If there was a draft treaty, he was to bring it with him. If not, the Mexicans could forward all proposals to Washington. Either way, Trist was to return home immediately. Now, I think it's time to discuss one of the problems with trying to come to an agreement about what territory would exchange hands. We've already discussed the delusions on the part of the Mexican people and the difficulty any leader would have giving away land. However, there were problems on the other side as well. First, as historian Peter Guardino points out in his book The Dead March, A History of the Mexican-American War, Americans were intoxicated with both the rhetoric of, the man of Manifest Destiny and the news of American military victories. These folks believed the United States should simply absorb Mexico in its entirety, rather than just take the northern areas of Texas, New Mexico, and California. Some Americans felt that there was no reason not to take advantage of a defeated and, in their minds, quote, racially inferior people, end quote. Of course, the problem was just how defeated was Mexico. While the major engagements might have been over, guerrilla warfare was taking place in and around the regions where American forces held power. And we've spoken about race and ideology before, but it would behoove us to revisit this topic in the context of the end of the war. Some Americans believed that if the United States took Mexico, the superior American race, whatever that meant, would eventually bring Mexicans up to the level of Americans. Others assumed that Mexico would have been forever governed by an American elite. Basically, Mexico would be a colonial possession of the United States. However, this movement to control all of, the, of Mexico faced significant opposition. First, opponents argued that keeping all of Mexico would upset the sectional balance of power in Congress, something that was more and more coming to dominate American politics. At least a few Southerners believed that Amer under American rule, Mexico would be open to slavery, while others felt at least some of Mexican territory would be free soil. Northerners, in general, believed if Mexico was to be taken in its entirety, it would be open to the extension of slavery, and thus they were against that idea. Having said this, the real issue, again, according to Guardino, was the fact that the Americans believed Mexicans were racially inferior to them. Quote, if American success in the world really rested on the superiority of Anglo-Saxon Protestant white people, 
What good would come of making millions of dark-skinned Catholics American citizens, end quote. Another problem in the minds of Americans was if these Mexicans were colonial subjects and not citizens, how does that work when the United States was a republic based on democracy? Would this be a threat to democracy? Thus, it seemed the best course of action was to incorporate only those areas which were thinly populated by Mexicans. In other words, New Mexico and California. Now remember, Texas was already seen as part of the United States by Americans. Finally, you might find it ironic that many of the most racist and anti-Catholic sentiments made in the U.S. Congress during the war were made not to justify unlimited American expansion, but to argue for limiting American expansion. Now, another problem with all of this was the idea that the United States had enough military power to actually take all of Mexico. Yes, some politicians believed it, but that doesn't make it true. As we've seen, even with this fall of Mexico City, there were still Mexicans who were willing to spill blood and treasure to fight the occupiers. These people were convinced that Mexico had a core set of values and beliefs, and these were threatened by Americans who held a racist anti-Catholic view, as well as by the way American soldiers behaved in Mexico. Could these people ever acquiesce to becoming a part of the United States? General Winfield Scott believed they would never do so. On Christmas Day, 1847, he told his superiors in Washington, D.C., that some Mexicans favored annexation, but that it would mean a permanent military occupation of the country. He went on to frame his argument in a way that was often done by Americans when discussing Mexico and Mexicans. Mexicans did not participate politically, and Mexicans were incapable of peaceful self-government. Now, by the end of 1847, it appeared that the moderates in Mexico and Trist, who was still in Mexico, by the way, were ready to reach a mutually acceptable agreement. Now, I know earlier I mentioned the fact that Polk, through his Secretary of State, had ordered Trist to return to the United States, and that he, Polk, was insistent on taking more territory as a way to punish Mexico for its intransigence. Now, in our day of instantaneous communications, things like text messaging, Skype, and FaceTime, amongst others, the idea that Trist would simply ignore Polk seems insane. However, things in the 19th century were much different. The letter from Buchanan to Trist was sent on October 6th. Trist received it about six weeks later on November 16th. At this point, Trist believed the Mexican government was ready to give the United States everything Polk originally desired, and he thought that if he left the country, it would put the chances of obtaining, of obtaining a treaty in jeopardy, or at the very least, delay that for many months. So he decided to stay and negotiate. Now again, all of this seems strange to us. But in a world where communications were not instantaneous, diplomats operating far from the center of power were given wide latitude and understood they'd be judged not on strict adherence to orders, but on success or failure. However, Trist did eventually pay for his defiance as his career of public service was derailed. In the meantime, by January of 1848, negotiations commenced. While the Mexicans still wanted to see the boundary at the Nueces River, they were willing to give up New Mexico and California, as long as they were given a large sum of money for the land, and the Mexican people who were living there were allowed to keep their land and continue to practice the Catholic religion. The Mexican negotiators eventually gave up on the idea of the Nueces River as the border, and various other details were ironed out. Thus, on February 2, 1848, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed, named after the Mexican city suburb, I'm sorry, the Mexico City suburb where it was signed. American possession of Texas was officially recognized, and the boundary of that state was recognized as the Rio Grande.
The United States also received all of the territory that now makes up the American Southwest, states of California, Arizona, Nevada, Utah, New Mexico, and parts of Wyoming, Colorado, and Oklahoma. Now, to compensate the Mexicans for their losses, the United States paid $15 million and agreed to pay the claims of American citizens for property damaged during Mexico's internal conflicts. These are the things about the treaty that most Mexicans and Americans remember about it, if they remember anything at all. It is generally known as a landmark of American expansionism and evidence of the strength of the expansionist desires of Americans in the late 1840s. However, it is also indicative of what and whom a Mexican government at its weakest point was still willing to fight for, even if it was only able to do so through diplomacy. As historian Brian DeLay points out, Article 11 ob obligated the United States to stop Native American tribes in the newly transferred territories from raiding into Mexico. Further, it made it illegal for American residents to buy Mexicans who were captured by Indians during such raids. It also prevented them from purchasing livestock or stolen property from those Indians as well. The Americans would also try and rescue any Mexicans who were captured by those Indians. Remember, Indian raids had devastated the residents of northern Mexico before and during the war. The irony of all of this is that Indian raids were caused by the market the American economy provided. Americans sought the products these Indians were selling thanks to the raids. Things like livestock and other goods were taken from Mexicans and sold to Americans, which then caused the natives to go out and raid once more. Thus, at the negotiations, the Mexican representatives, attempting to protect their citizens in the northern areas, were concerned with eliminating that market and, hopefully, the raids. However, the negotiators were not simply interested in protecting Mexicans who were still under the jurisdiction of the Mexican government. They also wanted to protect, as I mentioned earlier, the Mexicans who found themselves suddenly under the auspices of the United States government. The commissioners were able to get Trist to agree to Article 18, which obligated the United States to respect the property of Mexicans in California and New Mexico. This was an attempt to ensure Mexicans were not treated the same way Indians had often been treated by the United States. In other words, the Mexican negotiators wanted the Americans to extend citizenship rights to Mexicans, something that was a very big deal. Remember, in the Jacksonian period, citizenship rights were tied to racial ideology. So getting the Americans to extend citizenship to those considered racial others that was significant. Mexican negotiators were also very much aware of the strong anti-Catholic sentiment that was present in the United States, and they were able to get Trist to agree to specific protections for Catholic worship in the territories that were being transferred. Article 9 guaranteed Catholic priests would be able to work unmolested in the new territories, property of the Catholic Church would be protected, and Mexican bishops would be able to communicate with their flocks in the newly acquired lands. So you had Mexican negotiators who were working on behalf of their soon-to-be former countrymen. However, not all of their efforts would be successful in the long run. Now, of course, there was still the problem of ratification. First, would Polk accept a treaty which was negotiated by an ambassador whom he had recalled and which did not include all of the territory he now wanted? The answer, as it turned out, was yes. The fact of the matter was... There was a growing anti-war faction in the Congress, and they could cut off funding for the troops. If he failed to approve this treaty and he sent another ambassador to Mexico, there was no guarantee he would do any better. So, after noting an objection to Article 10, which dealt with land rights in Texas, the president sent the treaty to the Senate for ratification. While some on both sides objected to one aspect or another, 
For example, the expansionists felt they should have acquired more territory. In the end, the treaty was approved on March the 10th by the United States Senate and by Mexico on May 19th. Thus, the treaty went into effect May 30th, 1848. So, what to say is a conclusion? Well, first, let's kind of go back to the introduction. Back then, if you remember way back when, I said the reason for this season was that, in many cases, this war gets ignored in U.S. history classes here in the United States. The fact is, it's sandwiched in between the Age of Jackson and the American Civil War. And thus, we kind of skip through this. Another problem is that teachers have to make choices about how much attention they can give any topic. If you are in, for example, an advanced placement U.S. history course, you have to cut something down to make room for other topics. So, for example, you might want to discuss the age of Jackson, slavery, the market revolution, the Mexican War, and the lead-up to the Civil War. And usually that's all before Christmas. However, that's a lot. So, maybe you decide to cut something out. What do you cut out? If your course is AP US, chances are you're going to cut out the Mexican War, as that is one that's rarely tested. Further, the war doesn't paint the United States in a good light, so again, it's likely to get cut down or brushed over. Now that we're at the end of the war, what the heck was this war all about anyways? My argument this season has been that this war was an imperialist war, a war for empire, and that as early as the 1840s, the United States was already an empire. This is, no doubt, not a popular opinion. As a matter of fact, when I call the United States an empire, I often get pushback from students as well as folks on Twitter. Of course, the United States isn't an empire, they say. Don't you remember the Pledge of Allegiance? This is a republic. However, there's an entire body of work that deals with the United States as being an empire, and not just an empire for a moment in the late 19th and early 20th century. Historians such as Niall Ferguson of Harvard University and Andrew Basevich, pseudo-scholars like Max Boot, uh, authors like Ron Paul and Patrick Buchanan, who all of these people are from the left and the right, all of them have written about American empire as have others. Chalmers Johnson is one example. Furthermore, the United States, while it does not call itself an empire, certainly acts like one. It has military bases spread throughout the world. While some might argue this is to protect her and her allies from aggressive nations like Russia and China, I would disagree. During the 1990s when the Cold War ended, rather than dismantle NATO, an organization whose purpose no longer existed, the United States and the Europeans expanded NATO, much to the chagrin of Russia who had been promised that no such expansion would ever occur. Further, instead of closing down its overseas bases and bringing home the troops, the United States kept them overseas and kept many, if not all, of those bases open. I had an exchange with a now former follower on Twitter a little while back, in which the person was basically saying it is the duty of the United States to bring peace and freedom to the Middle East, and to do so through the use of military power. They were unaware of it, but they were espousing what has become, in my mind, the American version of the civilizing mission. We discussed this way back in episode 2.4, but this is an idea that's something that the British and the French engaged in back in the 19th century. This was the basis for colonial intervention throughout the world, using the excuse that they were attempting to spread civilization to the more unfortunate peoples of the world. In our case, the United States is attempting to spread democracy in the Middle East. However, one must ask, how does one spread freedom and liberty through violence? This idea, this spreading of democracy, has a long history in American thinking. Again, as I mentioned way back in episode 2.4, you can go back to the Bible in Matthew 
28.16-30, in which Christians are told it is their duty to go out and teach all nations. Teach them? What are we Americans supposed to teach them? Teach them Christianity? That was what was meant at first, but it's been changed to mean bring them the light of civilization, or if you prefer, the light of democracy. Well, what if they don't want our system? That's a question no one ever asks. Of course they want it. Why wouldn't they? Then I mentioned John Winthrop's City on a Hill. Again, he didn't write that sermon with the American imperialism on his mind, but later generations have taken it that way, especially modern neocons such as Max Boot, or the aforementioned Max Boot, and scholars such as Niall Ferguson, again, who I mentioned just a little while ago. Add this line to the line from the Bible, and suddenly you get the idea that this is the mission statement for the United States to not only build this city on a hill and to act as an example for others, but it's their duty to go out and to teach nations, to civilize them, to bring them the light of democracy. Then I mentioned Emmer de Vittel, the 18th century philosopher who wrote a work titled The Law of Nations. While I never heard of it until a couple of years ago, the founding fathers were quite familiar with it. Vittel mentions the idea of a universal society of the human race. Now again, I ask, what the heck does that mean? He's talking about the idea of the universality of Christianity and the idea that you need to go out and teach all nations and bring them into the light. Civilize them. I'll quote myself from that episode here. Quote, Think of the ideas of the universality of Christianity, the idea that it is the job of the Christian to go out and teach all nations and add that to the idea that the human race is part of a universal society. What Vitell is saying is that this applies to everyone, everywhere. He further mentions that while you might unite in a private association or separate uh, state or nation, you're still bound to the performance of your duties towards the rest of hum uh, mankind. He goes even further than this and says, quote, Having resigned their rights and submitted their will to the body of society and everything that concerns their common welfare, it thenceforward belongs to that body, that state, and its rulers to fulfill the duties of humanity towards strangers, end quote. That part about the duty of the rest of mankind, that's the key right there. So, the war with Mexico. How does this all relate? The war was not about subjugating Mexico. It was about rescuing the land and people of what would become the United States from the unenlightened and the backward Mexican people, or so the Americans of the 19th century believed. Or at least that's the lie they told themselves. I believe it was in one of those episodes on Texas where we discussed this. Americans believed the Mexicans, who were losing to the Indians, were essentially reversing the clock of history, and it was the duty of the United States to step in to extend its southern border across the continent to the Pacific and to civilize these native peoples. Of course, what the U.S. really wanted to do was to extend its border to the Pacific and absorb that land. The Indians didn't make any difference, one way or the other, as Americans did not believe they were fit to be citizens anyways. So now that we are at the end of all this, what happens next? Well, you could kind of say the United States is going to sort of choke on its prize from the war. The Mexican Cession, as it was called, is going to push the United States to the brink of war by 1860. The question of slavery is going to heat up again. And this time, well, there will be no John C. Calhoun, Daniel Webster, or Henry Clay to come up with a compromise. Instead, you will have Abraham Lincoln and the radical Republicans in the North countered by the fire eaters and radical secessionists in the South. 
where you had, prior to the war in 1846, the United States engaged in the first industrial revolution after the Civil War, the United States now heads into the second industrial revolution. The first industrial revolution was characterized by a focus on things like textiles, railroads, iron, and coal. This was the era of the textile mill, the development of the railroads, things like that. The second industrial revolution in the latter half of the 19th century would be characterized by railroads, oil, steel, and electricity. Further, the U.S. will have its imperial moment later in the century when it engages in a war to take the Philippines and Puerto Rico from Spain. Okay, well, that's the end of season two. I hope that, at the very least, you found it entertaining and enlightening. Season three is already, as I said before, in production, and I've got the season outlined and a couple of episodes already ready to go. I'll release the first two of those episodes on the first Monday of March, and then the plan is to release a minimum of one episode per month on the first Monday of each month. I would love to do two, but the only way that's going to happen is if I can build up a cache of scripts. So, let's hope for two per month, but at the very least, you'll get one per month for um, the first Monday of each month going forward. So, until then, have a great day. <laughs>